Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I, Paul, was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised works also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, Cephas is Peter, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. If you are like me, you wish Paul would just say something instead of uh, hit it up with a bunch of parenthetical comments. But nevertheless, that's how he chooses to write. Well, this is what we know of God's Word, that every word of His proves true. That He is a refuge. He's a shield, rather, to those who take refuge in Him. Will you pray with me as we begin to look at this Word? Oh Lord, would You help us tonight by Your Spirit Would you open our eyes, give us the ability to see? Would you grant us faith that we might believe? And, O Lord, we ask this all for your name's sake. Amen. So, uh, four things are about to happen. One, I'm going to tell you a quick story. Two, you're going to hate me. Three, you're going to hate me less. And then four, I'm going to tell you why I told you what I'm about to tell you. Here goes. One. About a year after I graduated from college, um, I was out celebrating a friend of mine's birthday uh, back in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, there were about 18 or so guys, um, all of us friends in some capacity, uh, eating out at Rio Bravo. I think that's for the place where we were. Now, uh, it had come time for us to sing happy birthday, uh, much like we did earlier for Stephen, uh, to our friend Ryan. And so we asked if our sweet little waitress wouldn't mind if she wanted to join in singing with us. She happily obliged. And so the time had come, and we are in the back of the restaurant, mind you, 18 folks screaming from the top of their lungs, happy birthday. Uh, It was uh, done so that everybody in the restaurant would turn and look at our dear friend Ryan to embarrass him. But then, as the last line of happy birthday came about, happy birthday, dear Ryan. Every single last one of us stopped singing except the waitress. <laughs> and as you can imagine, this left our sweet waitress soloing the last line of happy birthday in front of the whole restaurant. Happy birthday to you. 
Two, I told you you would hate me. I'm sorry. We, number three, we with the rest of our uh, table and the restaurant, restaurant applauded loudly for her. We tipped her generously and she actually loved it. See, I told you you would hate me less. Number four, why do I share this all with you? Because we were in on a little bit of a secret. The 18 pranksters knew information that she didn't have. Moreover, we knew that that information mattered supremely. Don't sing the last line. The server didn't have that news. And having it or not having that information had an incredible bearing on our lives. Either you laughed or you were embarrassed. You were one of those two. I want to suggest to you that that news, that that critical bit of information, what it was, mattered not only because it was news, but because of what it was news about. Paul, in our context here today, is going to say this. He is going to tell us that theological news, that theological content, what we often call doctrine, matters immensely. He's going to say not knowing it will not necessarily make you the butt of some 24-year-old's pranks. But he tells us in this text to neglect right thoughts, right beliefs about God is to actually make you enslaved. Said another way, for you to know real freedom, you must see that correct doctrine matters immensely. Now, as soon as I say this, I know where some of you are going in your mind. You're saying right now that I'm ready to get up out of here and leave. And you know what? I love you. You have complete freedom to do that if you want to do that. But I want to suggest that the, maybe the reason that you're saying that is this. You see, Ryan, we don't need to focus or deal with doctrine at all. It only divides. But before you leave, may I suggest a couple of quick things. First, Paul's whole theology, y'all, comes about not, not in some stale sort of operating room environment, disconnected from any sort of personal experience. In other words, every last thought that Paul has about the person and work of Jesus is because he had a personal encounter with him. In other words, all of Paul's doctrine and theology, all of it came about in the context of a personal knowledge of a person. Sorry to be redundant, but I really want to get that point across. And secondly, why I don't think you should leave. To say that we shouldn't focus on doctrine, I want you to understand that that in and of itself is a doctrinal statement. It is a doctrinal statement. To say something like, we sh doctrine doesn't matter, is doctrine. Moreover, you might be somebody that says, well, just give me Jesus. I don't want to deal with doctrine. That's taking the easy way out. Because here's why. As soon as you open your mouth about who Jesus is or what He did, guess what you're doing? You're doing theology. You're doing doctrine. 
And that's what Paul is exactly trying to make. He's trying to say this, you can't escape it. Everybody is doctrinal. Doctrine is just simply a set of beliefs. And because everybody believes something, everybody is doctrinal. So, may I beg this of you? Don't check out. Hang with me for a few minutes as we take a look at two very important points that Paul wants to make. They're there on your page. I've named them like this. The necessity of doctrine and the doctrine of necessity. Let's take a look at that first little bit there, the necessity of doctrine. So, Paul tells us the story of a trip that he took in this text. He went up, verse 1, you'll see it there, to Jerusalem with Barnabas and then also with Titus. And he had discussions with the pillars of the faith that get named later on, John, Peter, and James. They had a little bit of a conference, a little powwow as it were, and you can see the reason that he went up there. In verse, uh, I guess it was in verse 4 there where he says, I, did, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't running in vain. Sorry, that's verse 2. Well, here's how that meeting went. These pillars said, we're all good here, Paul. The content of your message lines up with what we're saying. So does the way you desire to carry out that message to the non-Jews, the Gentiles. In fact, these pillars, as a result, gave Paul in verse 9 the right hand of fellowship, asking him to just be mindful of the poor, something that he was already ready to do. Now the point here is not that Paul was really insecure, so he needed to go up into Jerusalem to sort of have his, you know, ego boosted. No, no, that's not the case at all. Because we can read earlier in chapter 1, if you're with me, Paul says that, look, if I preach something else, if anybody preaches something else, let him be damned. Paul is confident in his message. Why is he going up there? Here's why. Because he wants to know how the message itself has a bearing out on your and mine and his life. In other words, Paul demonstrates that the content of this message mattered deeply in all aspects of life. What the message was about had a bearing on its ability to go to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Think about it like this. If what he was actually saying didn't matter, then why go to the trouble of making the trip in the first place to make sure that everybody was on the same page. Paul is saying, you can't do without content. You can't live without doctrine. It is indispensable. It is absolutely necessary for you to actually live out your life, both as a Christian and as a human being. Let me illustrate. Laura, my wife, who's not here tonight, and I had some friends over for dinner last night. And as we did, we talked about this just ever so briefly. We talked about how sometimes in Christian circles, you hear people sort of throw out phrases that sound uh, like really biblical and nice, but actually aren't in the Bible at all. And we use this as a test case. I don't know how many of you ever heard, and maybe you've said this, and if you have, I'm going to encourage you to not say it again. But this is what, uh, this is what you often hear people say. Think of that person who's maybe down on their luck or they've had a rough go or something like that and somebody might say, to, say about them, hey, you know what? God helps those who help themselves. 
Now, that sounds really, really good, but you know what? That is a doctrinal statement. It is saying something about the nature of God and how He relates to people who don't have it together. Here's the problem, though. It's not in the Bible. It's not true. In fact, I'm going to offer as a substitute something that is in the Bible that comes straight out of the mouth of Jesus Himself when He says, apart from Me, you can do nothing. So, why does this matter? Well, here, think about it. Let's say that you are actually failing at life. Some of you in this room are. Life is kicking your butt. And you don't know what to do. And you have a choice to believe one or two doctrinal statements. Hey, God helps you if you'll help yourself. And you've been trying for years to help yourself and can't get it together. So what are you going to do in that moment? You're either going to try to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and try a little bit harder to get God to love you and accept you, or you'll believe the other statement that says, I've got nothing. I am nothing. It's what we just sang. All I have is Christ and Him alone. And the what you believe matters incredibly for how your life will get fleshed out. Do you see that? Here's what I'm trying to make and Paul, the point that Paul is trying to make. That doctrine itself radically affects everything you do in life. And for Paul, that's why he made the trip up to Jerusalem to begin to figure this out. Let's drive this home and apply it for just a moment. If you are a Christian in this room, I don't assume that everybody is, but I want you to think about the value of what, of what you know to be true about your faith. Put bluntly, right now, you are believing something about God, yourself, and the world around you. The question you need to ask, Christian, is if what I believe about Christianity is actually right. You see, here's what most of us do, myself included. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking to myself here. We prefer an ostrich mentality to approaching the Bible and the matters of faith. It is easier for us to bury our heads in the sand like an ostrich does because we don't want to think. We don't want to work hard at this. And then there's some of us who don't want to have to be changed because of what we know to be true. And so it's easier, frankly, to just dismiss it all. But may I put something before you? It was in college, when I was in your shoes, that I first began asking questions about what it was that I actually said I believed. Look, I grew up in church, but I knew nothing. Maybe that's you tonight. There's hope for you. You might end up being a campus minister one day. I don't know. But here's what I'm trying to get at. A little bit of a soapbox moment. Most of what I see at TCU is a Christianity that is out, like I just mentioned, to feel something and to feel something only. Everybody wants some sort of spiritual experience. But that sort of faith, y'all, cannot sustain you. It cannot. It's like straw in a fire, easily consumed. But when you begin to really work out the meat and potatoes of your faith, you will have the resources to begin to get you through life. 
Now look, I realize that you're here, and I'm, the, I'm literally preaching to the choir. You're here. You're listening. You're learning. And so I'm only going to say this. Press on into that. Go further up. Go further in. Dig in and learn stuff. Because it matters. It will be the ballast for your sails. It will keep you straight and on course. Here's, I'll say it like this. I can't count how many articles I have read about your generation. Students who leave the faith because it was sappy, sentimental, and lacked substance. And if we're honest, some of you are barely hanging on in this room because you grew up in a youth group that sold you Cokes, that sold you pizza and fun games and left you without any substance whatsoever. I'm not being critical. I'm just telling you that's probably true of some of you. And right now, because of that, some circumstances come up in your life and you feel like you're falling apart because you've got nothing but straw. Do you know how to stop that? Doctrine. Belief. Content. To give you something to hold on to. It matters deeply, and Paul knows it. Paul has said it's absolutely necessary. You must have it. It has a bearing on your life. But up until this point, we've not actually talked about the content of what he's talking about. And that's where we'll turn now into our second point. He's going to teach us a doctrine of necessity as part of what the content of what he's getting at. We could say it like this. What was Paul so concerned about that he went up to Jerusalem for? And here's the answer. That salvation is in Christ alone by faith alone. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that certain men, as we see in verse 4, had slipped into the Galatian church to spy on the freedom that those had in Christ. These men were saying this, look, it's cool if you want to be Christian, but before you become a Christian, if you're a Greek or you're a non-Jew, guess what? you got to become Jewish first. In fact, the only way that you can be a Christian is if you become Jewish first. And the way that you do that is you take on all of the cultural markers, not the least of which would have been circumcised. So guess what? It's cool if you want to be a Christian, but you're going to have to be circumcised too. And that's why Paul brings this man named Titus with him. Because Titus was a Greek. He was not Jewish. He was not circumcised. And so imagine this moment right here going on. They have set before the leaders of the church, Paul and Barnabas, has set Titus before them and they're saying, what about him? Does he have to be circumcised to be a Christian? And the folks in Jerusalem, thank God they got it right. Thank God they got it right. They said no. We acknowledge in this moment that any man or any woman comes to Christ and Christ alone by faith alone. It is not what you do at all. It is not your cultural markers at all that make you acceptable in God's eyes. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. It is grace. It is, as Robert Capone, a recently passed pastor, has just said, we are resentful at being the butts of the divine joke of grace. 
that says nothing matters except plain old, de facto, yes, Jesus, faith. Titus was the test case. One pastor put it this way, you contribute, y'all, listen, you contribute nothing, nothing, nothing to your salvation except your sin. That's it. It is what one hymn writer put it. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to Thee for dress. Helpless, look to Thee for grace. You see, if you were to read Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2, you would hear him say the same thing. He would say, salvation is by grace through faith. Unless you think that this faith is something that you bring to the table to receive that grace, guess what? Paul says that faith itself is a gift. Everything is by grace. The actual belief that you have to hold on to Jesus is an actual gift, Paul says. And y'all, what is, he, what, is, what is Paul getting at here? He is saying all you need is nothing. All you need is need. This doctrine of necessity, this doctrine to, of need is key, you guys, to freedom. Why? Here's why. Hang with me. Put your hat on. Because if you believe that you bring something to your salvation or that you have to attain a certain moral fiber before Jesus will accept you, listen, you will invariably and always be reminded by your conscience that you are never doing or never bringing enough. There's always something more. You'll always be saying, i got to do more or try harder. And this is incredibly enslaving and oppressing. You can't escape it because it always, always demands more. But grace, but grace utterly shatters that mentality. Y'all, Christianity is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And as another pastor, Tolyan Trevijan, puts it like this, Jesus plus anything is nothing. Jesus plus nothing is everything. But Jesus plus anything is nothing. Listen to how one writer speaks of this being found out and having nothing. She's a writer, an author, and she talks about the bankruptcy of her own abilities to write. At one commencement speech, these were her words. I stopped pretending to myself that I was anything other than what I was. And when I did that, I was set free because my greatest fear had been realized and I was still alive. And I still had a daughter whom I adored. And I had an old typewriter and a big idea. And so rock bottom became a solid foundation on which I built my life. Her liberation, her real freedom, came in realizing that when she had nothing in herself, she had absolutely everything. By the way, this writer would go on to write. She wrote a little book series called Harry Potter. 
Here's the point as it relates to Jesus. There is nothing you can do, nothing you bring to the table to get God to love and accept you. This is exactly what Paul's point is about. It is about the gospel of God's free and radical, scandalous grace. You will begin to know real freedom to the degree that you begin to admit and to see that you have got nothing. Now, I know this is different from what our culture tells us because it says this, you want real freedom, here's how you get it. Don't commit yourself to anything or anybody. You know what? Talk about community, but don't talk about accountability because then you'll be screwed. And the Gospel is going to say it's a lie. It's a trap and the cage's name is self. Self-reliance is utter bondage. You can bank on that. Many of us think that if we beat ourselves up over our past sins, that God will finally forgive us I struggled with this in college to no end. I had things in my past that I was deeply ashamed of. And I thought, you know what? If I grovel and I repent hard enough and real enough, then God will finally accept me. But look, doing that is trying to add something to the finished work of Jesus. I talked about this in Bible study. It's like walking to the foot of the cross as Jesus is hanging there and flipping Him the bird. Because what you're saying is, is that whole cross thing was really, really nice and helpful. Let me add a little something to it. Let me beat myself up over the guilt and shame that I have in my life. And actually what the Gospel is going to say is that doesn't count for anything. Will you, be, will you receive Jesus and Him and Him alone for your acceptance before God? Here's what this means before I close. This means that it's possible right now that you are hiding from the sweet, tender mercies of God by trying to show Him how harder you'll work and how more holy you'll be. You might say things like this, I got wasted this weekend, oh Lord. I'm really, really sorry. I won't do it again, I promise. And you know what? You may think that that's the grounds for which God's going to finally accept you. And you know what? You'd be dead wrong. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. You did it. You slept with her. You slept with her. And now you feel crushed. And you promise, you know what? I'm just not ever going to do that again, oh Lord. Will you finally, finally let me into your good graces? And you know what God's going to say? No, not on those grounds. No. I will on Jesus and Jesus alone. Do you see how radical grace is? Do you see how it absolutely upends, it disrupts, it terrorizes us because it means we bring nothing to the table? That's what God's grace does. It liberates you from every last molecule of guilt and shame. And I want you to know that Jesus plus nothing, not Jesus plus your repentance, gets you everything. Let that soak in, y'all. Swim in it. Swim in it. Jesus wholeheartedly accepts real sinners in real need. That's Paul's point. I'll close with this. Why do you think that me and you can rest from all of our efforts, be they circumcision or the billion other things that we add to Jesus? Here's why. As Jesus was on the cross breathing His last, His final words were, it is finished. What does that mean? It means that all the things that God expected you to do, Jesus did. 
At the same time, it means all the punishment that God had to pour out and reserved for you, He poured out on Jesus. And so now, now, it, you are radically accepted. Look, Jesus did not say, it is finished, now you go do your part. Now you go try hard. He said, it is finished, and then He was done. This is great news, y'all. This is incredibly liberating. It's incredibly liberating stuff to know that Jesus Christ, because of His finished work, God accepts you. And He delights in you. And He sings over you. And He doesn't merely tolerate you. He delights in you. This is the best news that you're possibly going to hear tonight. We're about to sing a song in Christ alone. And it is just loaded with this stuff. Will you sing it with me with great joy, knowing that it's true? Believe it, y'all. Believe it. Take hold of this and believe it. Let's pray. God, thank You. Thank You for the patience of these students who put up with me as I go on and on. But, oh Lord, would You make these things real in our life? Would You press them into our heart, we pray, that we might see the real beauty of Jesus. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.